joined the Air Force in Colorado and then came to Berlin. And there she became a true aviation legend. I once sat in a bar in Los Angeles, like on the other side of the world, and met an American Airlines pilot. He flies the 777 and I told him that I'm in a traffic controller in Berlin. And he goes, is there still this, this, uh, this lady with a, with a smoky voice? And I told him, yeah, she is. That's Colleen. And the whole world knows her voice, Colleen Cookie Conrad. To start off, could you give us an ATC clearance? Uh, turn left heading 290, descend 3,000 feet, clear for the ILS 26 right. Call me established. Awesome. Oh, God, I'd miss saying that. That was table, man. <laughs> yeah, you're retired. Um, How does it feel? It feels good. As a matter of fact, yesterday, somebody asked me, somebody we both know asked me if I miss ATC. And I said, I haven't thought about it. Other than the other aviation podcast I did, I haven't thought about it once. Okay. And that feels good. I, it feels like it's just behind me. It was a cool ride, but now on to the next wave. Awesome. I mean, it, it's not too long ago, right? A month ago uh, today, you were still working. So, yeah, a month and two days ago, February 13th. Yeah. Awesome. So, yeah. I've, I've seen you've been on a couple of podcasts already. This is the first English one. Um, for me, That's it's the true. first English one as well as a host. As you know, I just uh, started with ATC Pilot podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago and did this test round with Harold, another colleague of us. And yeah, let's, let's give this a try. I'm really excited. And you are actually the reason I started podcasting because I thought when you retire, you are that aviation legend. Everyone knows your voice. I just want to keep all those little stories you told me within the last couple of years when we were oh, working okay. together. So um, by my book, I'm writing a book. So oh, really? when that comes out, oh yeah. Awesome. That's you could probably write like 10 reason books. For, uh, that's what my friends tell me. But right now I just want to concentrate on finishing the one I started like 20 years ago. Okay, wow. So it's funny to go back and read things I wrote 20 years ago and then with who I am today to try to place it where I want to put it. So right now I'm doing a lot of revision because I don't know, the 35 year old Colleen had some strange ideas about stuff. Okay. We all evolve. <laughs> but, but, but there won't be aviation related only, I guess. That would be like a book out of your life or? Yeah, out of my life. I'm, right now I'm trying to think about putting it in five different little small books that you could read individually because each one on its own is worthy of a book okay so i think from the band three four and five there'll be atc in it but from band or volume one and volume two that's just everything that came before my 18th birthday okay yeah talk, <laughs> talking about your your life let's start right away i just said you were born in victorville california southern california logistics airport i've been there a couple of times it's an Airplane scrapyard today. It was a um, US Air Force uh, base back then. So right. your dad, he was in the Air Force, right? 
Yeah, my dad was in the Air Force, and uh, I think he was in logistics, actually, when we were there. So I was just born there. I think we moved when I was about six months old. Then we moved to Tallahassee, Florida. And that was another Air, Eglin Air Force Base, which I also think doesn't exist anymore in Florida. If you looked okay. it up, I think it it's probably a civil airport now. <clears throat> All of this stuff from the 60s is gone. Yeah, that feels weird, right. too, did. <laughs> <clears throat> Yeah, Cold War's over, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Okay, and then how did you get to ATC? Um, also, when I was in the... I, I have nine brothers and sisters. I, oh, wow. And I'm number four, and to study in America is quite expensive. So I just went to an Air Force recruiter and took the Eignungsprüfung, or the... What is it? The... Um, eligibility test mm -hmm. and they said I would be wait Eignungsprüfung proof in English would be let's let's go with eligibility so yeah. that I would be um or jobs that would be suitable for me were two one was air traffic control and one was a security policeman which is like a detective and I was like I don't really like guns don't ask me why I wanted to join the military if I don't like guns but I was like ooh definitely have to hold a gun for that one so I was like screw it and uh oh I didn't cuss there you notice I toned it down with the, oh, oh, with the language <laughs> so, that's okay and, I will um, beat that <laughs> okay <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna try to make sure this isn't so so many beeps here today um <laughs> yeah and then I I just took the I took the ATC and what you do in the Air Force is you can say okay I They'll, they'll say that you're suited to this job if you actually get to do it is based on how you do in the school. So I went to the basic training in San Antonio, Texas. It's eight weeks of, oh God, uh, learning how to wear the uniform, learning all the regulations, learning how to be a soldier, learning how to run, learning how to drink water. Because it was always really hot there. So you were forced okay. to drink two, two glasses of water at every meal. And that was actually yeah. my job at every meal was to make sure that everyone put two full glasses of water on their tray and they had to drink it. And okay. if I liked somebody, I would let them only put like a half a glass of water. Mm -hmm. Cause then it, once you drink the two glasses of water you could go get soda mm -hmm. or a glass okay. of milk. And yeah. I'm like, I, I knew some people needed their milk every day and I'd be like, all right, you're cool. And if I thought you were a, a jerk I'd be like, nah, fill that puppy up. <laughs> But okay, that was just like uh, fun, frustrated fun. Yeah, so after that, I went to Biloxi, Mississippi. And in the middle of that house building, there was Hurricane Elena. Mm -hmm. So Biloxi, Mississippi is where all US Air Force members get their basic training. And uh, yeah, in the middle of my training, um, Hurricane Elena came and they brought us all into this place called Cody Hall. It's like a giant, it looks like a giant basketball stadium. And that's where they had the, the um, tower simulator. We didn't really, we had a small radar simulator. It wasn't like connected positions and it was just, It was a little bit better than analog. It still showed the um, mode three, which civilians use, the mode two, which military planes use. There wasn't labels on the aircraft. So you would have your flight base strip in front of you and you would have to remember 
the which call sign belonged to which transponder code. Mm -hmm. Like in your own head, you would have to be like, okay, 5053 belongs to the uh, SAC or not SAC, uh, Special Air Mission um, 27 Charlie. And you would have to try to make this like Azelsbrooke with every target you had. So you can understand back then capacity it, wasn't like it is today. Yeah, and, and it didn't have the, the altitude and airspeed and everything on either, right? It was just a dot and you had to remember everything else. No, we, that would be analog. We had, a, we had analog with transponder data. Ah, okay, so, so, so you could read out the altitude with, with that exactly. thing or whatever, okay. I see. Right. So we had we had the altitude readout and the mode. So we, we had mode Charlie, mode two. The military targets all showed mode two. So that was helpful to make me remember which were my military targets. And then the mode three for the civilian. And uh, once we got to Berlin, we had um, a little bit more. We had the 3D antenna. Everyone knows that big golf ball at Tempelhof. And that allowed us to read measured heights which is something I guess the military uses. They also have like crazy ranges on their, um, what is that, um, radar defense, radar and stuff like that. I think anyone that studied this, um, what is that, Malaysian Airlines missing mm -hmm. airplane, they, I think most people learned a little bit about the capabilities of military radar. I don't know, did you go, go into that at all? I've actually listened to a podcast podcast yesterday with a guy from flight radar 24 and oh, okay. he said that when, when reading the report of the malaysian aircraft uh, being missing and it stated that it was missing from the from the radar scope already but it was still on flight radar 24 that's what a controller said on the phone when another controller asked hey where's that flight he was like well i lost him on radar but he's still on flight radar 24 which was pretty funny i guess but oh, wow. I, I, pr probably not for too long either so yeah, I but I would think they also have to have like a time lapse thing. I don't think they show actual. I think they're they're not allowed to show actual radar positions. I think there's maybe a thirty second delay. I don't know if he mentioned that. Possible, yeah. I don't know about that. Because even when the DFS put Stanley online, I don't know if mm -hmm. you remember Stanley. They also they I think they had if it wasn't maybe even a 90 second delay so that nobody on the ground would know the actual position of an aircraft. Mm. I could be yeah, but I think right flight radar 24 is, is pre pretty accurate. I mean, when, when oh, I'm yeah. at airports, uh, plane spotting and everything, you could always just look like 10 miles out, there's a light on final and then you watch, oh, that's the 747 there I want to take a photo of. So it's pretty accurate. Yeah, it's maybe, awesome. uh, okay, maybe they don't have to do that time delay thing anymore. So that was Biloxi, the radar, Elena. So I don't know, we spent like a few weeks doing cleanup. We spent at least a week in this Cody Hall. So it was like me and maybe 250 young female soldiers where we just slept on the floor and we used our, our helmet. They would pour water in our helmet and that's how we could take a bath every day. Okay. And uh, so that was pretty um, cool. At any rate, it's at the beginning of tech school. Okay, your first week of tech school, you have to take the FAA test. So this, if you can get your FAA certificate, uh, maybe it's the first two weeks. It, it's all the basics of air traffic control. Um, 
basics about equipment, basics about radar, basics about meteorology, basics about nav aids, basics about airspace structure. There's all these different sections. And then after the end of two weeks, you take this test. If you get your FAA certificate, then you can go on and finish your basic training as an air traffic controller for the Air Force. And um, the first couple of days, I had zero idea about what we were doing there. And I thought I better sit in the front row so I can listen good and ask questions. And I think the instructor was talking, was probably talking about nav aids or something and saying, you know, or I know he was talking about a compass. And I was like, I, I was not a Girl Scout. I don't remember. So he, he was talking about North and South and East and West. And I felt like I was totally unprepared for the world because the idea that 360 was North everywhere was like mind-blowing for me <laughs> so and I couldn't contain myself I sat in the front seat of the the class and I was like so let me get this straight <laughs> zero nine zero is always this direction and yeah and okay and well this is so weird so north south and all of these little numbers are directions and everyone in the class was like, you know, oh my God, I'm rolling their eyes. Come on, let's move on to the next subject. But that went on for like the whole two weeks, no matter what they were talking about. And the vectoring really blew my mind because I was like, okay, the airplane is here and wants to go there. And then I have to put like a compass around him. And then I send him to the place that's the number on the compass that takes him I was like, this is like math, man. <laughs> this is blowing my mind. And, you were only um, struggling with, with the headings and training, right? I mean, in theory, if you told me once, you always had the 100% mark. Oh, well, the, no, this was my very first two weeks of air traffic control school. Oh, okay. This was like, I had zero idea before this. So in these first two weeks where they were teaching you everything, I was like, I had no idea before. You know, I had no interest in aviation other than my dad was in the Air Force, so I would always look up in the skies and see airplanes, which I thought was cool. I know I visited a tower on Okinawa, and when we lived on Okinawa, I remember seeing the SR-71. I mean, that was always impressive, but I never felt a relationship to, to flight other than the fact that I was an Air Force kid. So I, I was like, okay. Because I was born on an Air Force, Air Force base, I automatically have my wings to me. And that's all that I needed to know about airplanes. They have wings and they have seats. That's cool. And um, yeah, so at the end of the two weeks, we all had to take our test. And the teacher was saying, somebody got 100%. And a couple of people are going to have to look for a new job. And she was like, I'll start at the bottom except for the people that are gonna have to look for a new job or something like that. And then she was like, uh, airman, blah, 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 70%, you passed. Airman, blah, 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 airman, blah, blah, blah. And there was only like five of us left in the class and she still hadn't said my name. And I was like, uh, I felt like my butt fell through the chair and hit the ground. And I was like, God, I'm gonna have to become a security policeman or something like that. And then she went on and on. And then she said, okay, and hundred percent. And she put it in front of me. And I thought, I guess I'll turn around. 
And so okay. I was just like, <laughs> there was another beep. <laughs> exactly. I said, I said, Okay. No, and I was like, I I was happy, and everyone was like, "Whoa, we're happy for you!" But we can't believe it. This is this is impossible. And I was like, "Yeah, man." I have to say, I super applied myself. I was, I gave, I was in the books all the time because I was like, I'm gonna have to try ten times harder than everybody else because they all brought something with them to the table, and I was starting from zero. Yeah, so then uh, my last day of school, I also got maybe not the last week, I got my orders to Berlin. And I was happy about that. I was like, yeah, I, I, go to Europe. I was going to say, you had this kind of wish list and you were exactly. like, I, I want to go as far from the US as I can, right? Exactly. I think I, okay, I think if I think back, I know for sure Hawaii was on the wish list. I think I also put Italy, Aviano, and the Azores, and Japan. Okay. So, mm -hmm. and Berlin. And I, I'm guessing Berlin was like number five on the list. It wasn't the top of my list. I'm, I'm pretty sure Hawaii was the top of the list because why not? You know, if you get a chance to go to Hawaii, take it. Yeah. And um, so I was happy. I got my orders. Orders are like a big 300 page. It's all the same piece of paper, but 300 copies of it because you have, everywhere you go, you have to give somebody five copies here or three copies there. So I took my big stack of papers and I went home for two weeks vacation. And like immediately when I got home, I wanted to walk onto an Air Force base with my ID card in civilian clothes. I was like, man, I've been wearing this uniform for like the last five months. I wanna, I wanna go on base with my ID card and show it to people. So I just thought I'll take my luggage and then get my ticket. Cause I really wanted to get my ticket. I was like, oh yeah, I'm getting my ticket. So I went to the Air Force base to the um, travel center and uh, I handed the guy my orders thinking this was going to go, this was going to be a quick and easy, dirty thing and I'd be out of there, you know, go to McDonald's or the Burger King on base and get a milkshake and just enjoy the day. And um, he'd stopped and he was like, oh, one second, clickety, 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 click, clickety, 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 click. And then he pulls something out and I could see canceled on a big red stamp on the paper. And I thought, so my little heart's beating, little heart's beating. And then he's like, clickety, 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 click. This teletype machine, this other big, you know, they had those, those papers that had the holes on the side. Mm -hmm. So like a sonrod. So this whole thing comes out and I could see from where I was standing, I was like, Vance Air Force Base. I wasn't sure if that meant that's where I was going to have to go, but I thought, I'm not giving this guy my luggage. I was like, dude, I forgot something in the car. <laughs> and I thought, this is not what I wanted. I didn't want to go um, 100 miles north of Colorado Springs. So I got in the car and I thought, uh, Air Force, the U.S. Air Force Academy is just up the street. <laughs> I drove there, <laughs> go in. <laughs> And I don't even know why this idea came to me. And I don't know why I even thought it was appropriate that the Air Force would uh, deal with this. But I thought, you know, why not? And I went to the US Air Force Academy and the guy told me you're in the wrong place. And I was like, oh, come on, man. I was in the neighborhood. Then I got to drive all the way back to Widefield and blah, blah. And he was like, okay, I'll make an exception. When do you want to go? And I was like, ASAP. 
I would like to go to my place of duty as soon as possible. And he was like, yeah, well, you've still got some uh, vacation. And I was like, doesn't matter. I'll take it some other time. Let's get this thing started. And I think he made it for two or three days later. I can't remember. All I know is I gave him my, my bag. He printed out my ticket, you know, it was Pan Am. And I was like, I'm going to New York. I'm going to, oh my God, I'm going to New York. I'm going to Berlin, oh my God. So I was all excited, <clears throat> drove home. And my dad was sitting in his, you know, lazy boy chair. And I was like, dad, um, my country needs me. I've got to leave um, day after tomorrow. And he, he, he was in the Air Force himself. So he was like, I think he said something like, that's a load of malarkey or something like that. And I was like, no, no, I got my ticket, man. I got to go early. Country needs me. So, <laughs> which was hey, kind do, do you remember your flights to, to Berlin and to New York? What, what airplanes did you fly on? Um, I think New York. I don't remember what I took from Colorado Springs to New York. But I know I took a TriStar. I took a Pan Am L1011. I think that's nice the TriStar, right? right? Right. Yeah, it is. L1011 to Hamburg. And then we got the, we got in a 727 from Hamburg uh, to Berlin. And I know that call sign, it was Clipper 606. Because even when I eventually later worked the corridors, like in the morning, uh, Clipper 600 would come in from Hamburg later in the afternoon, Clipper 602, 604, 606, 608. Mm -hmm. So those call signs belong to the, the Hamburg Strecke for uh, Berlin. But I, anytime I talked to Clipper 606 afterwards, I always felt like I have to make it number one, you know, that's like my plane. Yeah. So that always felt good. And then, then there's yeah. a special story of, of you being on board that airplane, right? When you came to Berlin the first day, nobody was expecting you. So what did you do? Uh, yeah, so I got on the flight. And then I once I got off in Hamburg, I was confused in Hamburg. I thought I had landed in Berlin. And the guy was like, no, the flight's going further. And I was like, oh, how do you find that stuff out? You know, I evidently hadn't looked at my ticket and didn't realize there was like a a stop so I, I was like this sucks why don't people tell me anything and um um yeah in Hamburg I actually they gave me like a uh like a coupon or something for food the U.S. Air Force not like a coupon like a, a good shine or something so I know I went into the cafeteria there this has nothing to do with ATC I got a hamburger because I thought that was it it made me chuckle to get a hamburger a hamburger in Hamburg, which I thought was hilarious. So I'm in my uniform and I'm, you know, I have my hamburger and I get in the airplane and in the airplane, it dawned on me that I had canceled orders so that nobody where I was going was going to know I was on my way. And I had $5 in my pocket. I mean, the at U.S. military bases, there's U.S. military banks. It's called the Savings and Credit Union, SCU. So I knew with my ID card, I could always go to the credit union and get cash. We didn't have Geld Automaten back then, believe it or not. Those did not exist mm. back then. And I was like, whatever. As soon as I get to the base, I can you know, go to the bank and, and take money out. But why I thought it was okay to travel over the Atlantic with $5 in my pocket, I don't. Today, that just there's no way that would happen. But I did. 
So it dawned on me that nobody was expecting me. And I asked the stewardess if she could like bring me to the cockpit that I needed to talk to my people. And I'm pretty sure that's what I said. And then she was like, mm, one second. And being in uniform, I mean, this was before 9-11, whatever. I mean, an Air Force member in the city of Berlin wants to go into the cockpit. It's like, yeah, okay, we can do this. And um, she let me go into the cockpit. And then this gray haired man, he's probably my age. He was probably like my age now. But when you're like 19 years old, it's like, and he turned around and he was like, so what do we have here? Or something like that. And um, then I said, I'm Cookie Conrad from Colorado and I need to talk to my people. And he was like, uh, who exactly are your people? And I was like, I'm an air traffic controller. And he was like, oh, really? For which airport? And I had no, I, I, I was like, uh, what the hell is he talking about here? What is he talking about? And he was like, well, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say you're for Tempelhof. And um, yeah, so, which also confused me, but I think I had remembered seeing something that said TCA, Tempelhof Central Airport, somewhere on my order. So I was like, that could be. Not like I had reviewed or looked at or read my orders at all. For me, it was just this big stack of papers. And I was like, it says my name on it says Berlin, I'll just take this with me everywhere I go. No need to read the fine print. But- um, And then you were yeah, flying so to Tegel, he, right? So, so you-, you Exactly. Kind of, and, and you didn't know that there were three airports actually in, in Berlin back then, or actually four. Uh, so- Right, I did, I had no idea. So then- I also, I also didn't know that Berlin was in the middle of Eastern Germany. Mm -hmm. In my mind, I thought, and I thought this is weird, that Berlin had a wall around it on the West German side <laughs> and that the East German part of, uh, or East Berlin part of East Berlin was on the East German side with a wall around it. And I, I was like, why? If it's in the West and it has a wall around it, whatever i was like politicians do funny things but i had no idea that i was flying so i must have been really poorly educated is all i can say right here all i know is that i had no idea i was flying to the middle of east germany i think at some point in time somebody cleared that up for me and there i was also dumbfounded i was like what i'm surrounded by communists <laughs> so yeah so um Then Don talked to the uh, controllers and was like, Berlin, Clipper 606. And they were like, Clipper 606, go ahead. And he's like, uh, this is Clipper 606. And I got a girl here, uniform, cookie from Colorado. She says she's one of yours. Then there was like silence. And then uh, he told, he gave me a headset and he said, okay, you can talk now. And then I was like, test, 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 over, test. Uh, Berlin, this is Cookie Conrad from Colorado. More silence. And then I thought, oh. And then Don got back on the uh, radio and explained to them that I needed a ride if someone can come get me. There was another big long silence. And then eventually somebody said, okay, we're going to send a couple of people there to go get her. And they told me to wait at the meeting point. So when Because I got you, you, you landed in Tegel and you had to go to, to Temple. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 
And two young airmen, two controllers, showed up in a baby blue Volkswagen bug. And I thought that was the coolest thing. I was like, I'm driving in a German car. And they put me in my big bag in the back of their Volkswagen bug. And uh, they drove me to the base. And then some young girl that's also a controller was like, well, nobody knows she's here. She doesn't have a room. I'll let her sleep in my room. And I was like, that's cool with me. So she took me to her room. And then whenever I woke up, uh, the young controllers all in their 20s were like, let's show her the town. So they took me out like every day to Kudam, Joe's on Kudam. They were like, you need to eat a donor today. You need to eat your first uh, curry verse. You need to eat, uh, you need to drink a Berliner Weiss mit Schuss. You need to, every day they were giving me all these new experiences. And I was loving it. I was not, not questioning it because I thought my days are numbered. I'm going to be out of here in no time. And um, at some point in time, the girl's name is Rhonda. Rhonda had to go back to work and she took me with her. And then I just hung out in the radar room. Like if her shift was from six to two, I would stay there till 10 o'clock at night. I wanted to meet everybody in the facility and ask questions and I just sat in the control room probably for a little over a week from six in the morning till 10, 11 o'clock at night. I'd sit there with the night shift. I'd go outside and stare at the airplanes on the, um, uh, gee whiz, on the apron from the balcony. And I got to know everybody and I did things for them. I would go pick up their food. I'd polish their shoes. I would go pick up their dry cleaning. I'd go to the post office for them. Anything anybody needed done, I was doing. And I wasn't doing it to be a butt kisser. I was just trying to keep busy. I was like, what can I do? Nobody offered me any like ATC related training. So then the chief um, controller had heard there was this young girl in the facility. And he kind of recalled seeing my name at some point in time on their inbound board. You know, you have a you have a, a board of your the status of your employees, and it says if you're receipt if you're getting inbound employees and who's outbound, who's leaving at what time, and then you have to figure out you know how you move your dean's plan planning, and um, so he had kind of recalled seeing that name there, but he also knew it had been canceled for a good reason because you never had inexperienced controllers in Berlin because it was too politically sensitive so it was net it was never meant that fresh controllers from the uh academy would go to a politically sensitive airspace like berlin so there was no trainings program for me but at any rate i walked into his office and he was a graduate of the u.s air force academy and so was his wife so from colorado or they knew colorado springs so I, I knew that as I went in there and I was like, sir, Airman Conrad reports is ordered. And he was like, at ease, Airman. I'm like, you know, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be like a good soldier here. And um, he was grinning because it was like too much. You know, nobody walks into a, a chief controller's office and goes, sir. <laughs> yeah. But I was like, I was like, I'm gonna show him I'm a good soldier. And uh, he was like, everyone here seems to like you, but you don't belong to us. I'm going to have to figure out what to do with you because we can't keep you. And I was like, man, I really like it here. And I'd really like to stay here. 
And he made some phone calls. He called like the Air Force headquarters and they informed him that Vance Air Force Base in Oklahoma was missing me, but not so, so bad. They, they were like, well, we could actually do without her since, because the Air Force was like, man, now we got to organize her a flight and see if there's probably disciplinary action. And uh, the chief controller was like, well, we're okay with her. We, we just need to see if we can get a trainings program for her. So that was a big question. And then they sent me to the training office, um, this guy named Cooch. And he was like, yeah, I'll see what I can do. I'll, I'll throw something together. And I was like, cool. So yeah, he started my training and then it probably took over a month for to get the final approval from the Air Force for me to stay there. And the, also the final approval to have an uh, inexperienced controller, one that might not be politically correct on the radio. We don't want that to happen. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> to stay in Berlin and uh yeah the rest is history and then the the airspace you started working in was super different from from what you knew right because there were corridors through this eastern German airspace so how was that right like? um okay once they explained to me that these these corridors they're 20 nautical miles wide There was an inbound route and an outbound route in each corridor. And I think each of the routes were two and a half miles from the corridor boundary. So we always, if you stayed on the radial, you would always be the minimum separation from the um, lateral limits of the uh, corridor. And each in each corridor, the, um, the routings went into like a V shape to, a fix so they weren't parallel the whole time it was like a departure route would go to this one fix and then it would split off so there you would always have to have your vertical separation until they got to a point on the corridor where you could discontinue vertical then they would fly past each other that's important because back then we often had radar outages and you needed to control the aircraft non-radar so they would have to report leaving this fix or approaching this other fix so that you knew you had enough lateral separation to discontinue vertical. Mm -hmm. So that was super important back then. And uh, yeah, all of the corridors, 20 nautical miles wide. The control zone in Berlin was from, the center of the control zone was the position of the Berlin Air Safety Center. And that was the, since the airspace over Berlin was controlled by the, uh, the allies and the corridors, um, the allies in this instance are the Russians, the British, the French, and the Americans. So the corridors and everything that went on in the corridors and in the control zone around Berlin had to be done with approval from all four allies, which included the Russians. The Russians also owned all of the airspace over East Germany. So they had a say in what happened in the corridors because they allowed us to have the corridors over their, their airspace. And they had a say, should an aircraft leave the corridors? So the Berlin Air Safety Center, it's on Hauptstrasse in Berlin in Schoenberg. Have you ever been there? No. Also, okay. 
Hauptstrasse. Well, if you ever go to Schoenberg, look for Hauptstrasse. And then there's mm -hmm. a big Eamalige Gerichtsgebäude. And it was pretty empty. There, like if you, we would have parties there in the summer and you would go in and there would be one room with this huge long table. And I think each week a different allied power had like the biggest say or was like the um, like speaker of the house or something like that. And at the head of the table would be whoever that ally was for the week. That would be uh, the Americans maybe this week. And then on the side of the table would be a French officer, a British officer, and the Russians always had a translator. There were always two Russians in that room. They were never alone. There was always the Russian officer and his translator. And we had a flight plan processing system at Tempelhof called Flipco. Um, I think it stood for flight information processing and coordination. It was a system that only worked within Berlin and then to Langen radar at Mansbach, which was the end of the Southern corridor. I guess it's like Mansbach, Fulda, wherever the East German boundary was down there. And in Mansbach, which is on the West German side, we had uh, an antenna because the Southern corridor to Berlin was so long that we needed to have another um, radar antenna to do the full coverage. So we would, we would send our radar maintenance guys for, I think they would go one week at a time or maybe even 10 days and they would sleep in a hotel and they would do the maintenance for the Southern corridor radar unit. So like whenever those guys would come back, I would see him like in the club and I'd be like, yo, how was Monsbach? And, you know, so we, we all knew each other. We, we knew all of our radar maintenance guys, like the guys that did our approach radar. That was the ANP-12, also an antenna on the top of Tempelhof. And then we had these ANPFS. Those were the um, uh, PAR radars antennas so totally different stuff but we knew all the guys that worked on the stuff we knew the guys that fixed our radios it was probably now like the relationship with the technikers you know you chit chat with them and uh what was i going to say uh those are all the corridors the berlin air safety center but air safety yeah. center that was involved whenever aircraft had to leave the corridor right i mean when you have thunderstorms and everything then pilots are not able to stick on their route and they have to deviate to the left or right. So what happened when they had to leave the corridor and enter Russian airspace? So the safety center was involved with everything. Like I said, we had this flip code. So um, I would get a phone call from say Bremen radar and they would give me a Bruckendorf estimate. The flight had to enter the corridor within a three minute window. Like if I said 19, 17 the plane was going to enter the corridor the pilot could enter as early as 1914 and a couple of seconds and no later than 1919 and 59 seconds if so for the brainman controllers I, I never really talked to them about this they would normally do the frequency change when they were assured that the plane wouldn't have to do a 360 because it couldn't comply with the plus minus three minute thing so normally they would only do a frequency change to Berlin radar when they knew we weren't going to have to spin a plane. 
if they did send the plane to us and a speed control wouldn't be enough to um, assure the pilot entered within this window of time, um, yeah, we would have to turn it out. And then I would have to call the air safety center and say, uh, he couldn't make the time. So I need to give a new estimate. Then I would give a new estimate and then I the Russians would give us a new approval. You weren't also supposed to do like, you weren't, you were supposed to enter the corridors on a straight flight path. You couldn't, you had to enter over Brookendorf or over Heligan or over Monsbach. You couldn't, you couldn't do this fishtail stuff to, to gain some time or whatever. So that was always like, it would take a lot of your capacity just to stare at a plane and be like, oh, is he gonna make it? Because to know you have to turn them around and there could be one. So there would be a lot of coordination involved with Bremen radar or Frankfurt to say, uh, I got to spin him. You're gonna have to climb that other guy or descend that other guy or turn the other guy out. And then we would have to make two whole new estimates with the Russians. and. Uh, you asked uh, what would happen if they left the corridors. If a plane mm -hmm. left the lateral limits of the corridors, they weren't supposed to leave the vertical limits because that was more um, dangerous. The first option was always to try to laterally go around clouds or something. <clears throat> the pilot always had to do a pan, 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 pan. Pan, 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 pan. Do his pan, pan, pan thing which happened quite often back then. I was really used to hearing pan, 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 pan. It was something that we, we heard all the time back then. Even Mayday we heard quite often because mm -hmm. different pilots would say different things. Sometimes they would say Mayday and I'd be like, oh, okay, what is the, what's this emergency? And then he'd say, well, we're, we're gonna leave the corridor. And I'd be like, ah, okay. And I had to, I would inform the safety center that I had an aircraft that was leaving the lateral limits and then they would stamp his flight plan with this sentence that we also had to read to the pilot. And it said, um, safety of flight cannot be guaranteed. This flight can be fired upon without warning. That was stamped on the wow. flight plan. Okay. So the first time that happened, I thought they're not messing around, but nothing, nothing ever really happened. So I never felt, um, I think the first few times, this seemed like a, a serious sentence to say to a pilot. And they all seemed pretty cool with it. I know the first couple, I was like, what, I gotta tell this guy this? Because you have to inform the pilot. You know, you're leaving the lateral limits of the Berlin corridor, safety of flight cannot be guaranteed. And that would be to motivate them to get their butts back into the corridor. But we never really got approval to exit the corridors. The Russians would just say they're informed. They're informed. One of our flights has left the lateral limits. So to did you ever see bird. that they, they've been intercepted by like Russian combat aircraft or something? <clears throat> uh, yeah, I had pilots that would say they saw um, aircraft. I would see primary targets moving really fast. So they almost... I would say the Russian aircraft almost never, ever have a transponder on the whole time I was in Berlin. The only Soviet aircraft I saw with transponder would be like the Aeroflot going into Schoenfeld and or the lot. But um, 
all over the place, we always saw tons of targets going below. And since we didn't have altitude readout, I mean, okay, we had the 3D radar, we had the FPS 117, the golf ball, so we could read out measured heights, but they're not reliable. But I would say- And that was pretty limited in range, right? The 3D radar? Um, I think the FPS 117 went all the way to almost Heligan. I think the FPS 117 had actually much further capabilities because it was used to look at Russian um, uh, strategic flight maneuvers way okay. past. Yeah. So that the air traffic controllers never used them to their full capacity. I think their full capacity was for the guys behind that other door. Okay. This sounds yeah. like conspiracy theory stuff, but it's... <laughs> <laughs> no, but talking it's about, true. Talking about Bartek, Bartek means Berlin Air Road. Traffic uh, Control Center. Traffic Control Center, right? Yeah. So you were working there as a military controller. Um, when did the civil controllers join you, the Bartek? So, okay, during the time, okay, the, the 1946 agreement designed the corridors. I think I brought this up before. And back then, planes couldn't really fly above 10,000 feet. So they agreed that the top of the corridor would be only 10,000 feet. They didn't imagine in 1946, we would need much more than that. And they also decided back then that only allied controllers would control um, the flights to and from Berlin. Um, we did have civilian controllers in the towers. I think they made that exception in the 1970s because the French uh, couldn't always man a uh, Tegel Tower with enough people or something like that. So in the 70s, they started to allow West German controllers to work the airspace over Berlin. And Berlin also had a, another special facility that didn't exist anywhere in the world. It was called the Berlin Mission. And it was a person that was picked by the United States president. It was a pres presidential appointee. It was like a miniature FAA, but only for the airspace over Berlin. So the, the, Berlin, the Berlin mission had other duties also, but they had one person that was responsible for aviation related matters. And he was also responsible for licensing and changes to the 1946 agreement. And, um, oh, our air, my Air Force squadron at Tempelhof was called the 1946 Communication Squadron. So it ties in nicely to how the name of the document that created the corridors. And um, so the Berlin Air Mission gave these West Germans permission to control in the towers. So that wasn't necessarily in these, in the airspace to and from Berlin um, over East Germany, because they specifically didn't want Germans West Germans controlling the flights over East Germany. So that ha happened only after the, the fall of the Berlin Wall. Right. The civilian after the fall of, right. After the fall of the Berlin Wall, pretty quickly, the BFS, the Bundesanstalt for Flugsicherung, came to evaluate the situation. And they were invited by this 
new political entity called the four plus two group. And that was the four allies with the two Germanys on the table. Because pretty, well, this was before unification. This was already, I think the BFS came already in the spring of 1990. It became clear that there was going to have to be some kind of restructuring that the West Germans would be involved in the East German airspace. And the four allies sat down to talk to the two Germanys on how this would look and what, what would have to be the steps to take for the allies to evacuate the East German airspace and for the East and West Germans to find a way to control it independently from uh, allied forces. And like I said, that already started in, in early 1990. And I would say in the summer of 1990, we got like, I think eight or 10 West German supervisors were sent to Berlin to get licenses so that they could understand what our technical shortcomings were, our telephone systems. They needed to learn what our navigation aids were. They needed to, to get a like an uberblick of what was there and what would be needed to develop it to connect with the West German or even Western European networks. Because eventually we would have to take up all of the airspace around East Germany. So these Wachleiters came, they got their licenses. They weren't Wachleiters in the Bartak, they had a mission. Their mission was to, to somehow design a way to step-by-step, step, slowly, incrementally um, get the two German airspaces into one homogenous functioning body of airspace. And then you were actually involved in creating that new Berlin airspace, right? The airspace structure. Right, right, right. Well, first came this four plus two talks, and I usually sat with the Air Force on, on their side of the table, across the table from the Germans. And Normally, I would be the person that would explain like details about stuff in in the control room or specifically how we work, because these were mostly uh, military men on our side of the table. It was all colonels and majors and, you know, the people that were responsible for the radar and the radar capabilities. The Russians would be there to represent the East German airspace and let us know. They always had to be careful what they told us about their radar capabilities, but we needed to know what kind of facilities they had in order to design airspace over East Germany and to be able to see what we would need to be sighted because back then or anytime a navigational aid has to be put on a site that makes sense. Especially if you're going to, especially with radio signals and stuff like that, radios, uh, with the cosine, you have to make sure you don't have stuff like broken, you know, big mountains and stuff. So it's it's not easy to cite navigational aids or cite um, uh, radio facilities back then before it was digitalized. Back then, before it had, this was all stuff that had to be done from the surface of the earth back then. I think we were getting in the direction of like even our telecommunications, we were moving to the next generation. I think that's what the West Germans told us too back then, that they would they would envision that we could have all of our um, 
types of coordination and stuff done digitally through, um, what do you call those? Uh, glass, glass fazer. Yeah. Glass fazer cobble. That didn't exist back then, believe it or not. Okay. Not, not with the type of bandwidth now. So I remember the West Germans talking about this and that there would be, that we could handle big volumes of data and stuff with this and that they were working with telecom. There was people from the post and telecom also at these discussions to tell us what our, what would be the capabilities, the technical capabilities to create this new airspace thing. So I always sat there like, whoa really because i always thought i was privy to special information that i had no business knowing but i was like okay and they would ask me basic questions maybe about something air traffic controlling and i would be like oh i'm an expert here and it would be something that anybody could know i thought but that felt nice and because of that i mean after in 1992 um I, I could have left the US Air Force in 1993 because then my contract would have been up. And I asked the Air Force if I could leave early to stay with the Germans because back then I was married to a West German and he kind of wanted to stay. He was like this, this, he, before he had wanted to go someplace else and see things in the world. But I think after the fall of the wall and that the two Germanys were coming together. He thought, I would like to see this. I don't really want to leave in the middle of this. And I was like, okay, I will leave the Air Force early. And the BFS was actively recruiting amongst the military controllers for whoever was going to get out. And they offered me a job. So, and for the US Air Force, I was the, um, the trainings lighter. Believe it or not, I was actually in the training up. <laughs> Mostly my biggest responsibility was like the Flipco, the task. You can ask all of the East Germans whenever they first came to Tempelhof, like they got all their uh, equipment briefings from me. So that was like my area of expertise. And, and a, um, a couple of years uh, later, you, you left the, the DFS, right? And then you, you went back to the US. Oh yeah, but that comes like much later. This comes like eight years later. So okay. I left, I left, I left in 92. I left the Air Force. And then I finally signed all my papers at like noon. And I had a three o'clock shift as a DFS or a BFS employee. Or no, actually, I was employed by the Lufart Bundesamt because I couldn't work for the BFS because the BFS was for Beyonce. So and that was I, only for Germans. My, Right, so I had a contract with Lufart Bundesamt as a Angestellte and ich durfte die Tätigkeit Fluglotsen ausüben. I think something like that is in my contract. Okay, yeah. So, because it was a whole height like Aufgabe and normally only Beyonce could do that. Yeah. So I, I got this exception in the contract and I finally got out of the Air Force like at 12, 1230, signed all my papers. I was a free citizen, a civilian. And at three o'clock, I had to be back in the center for um, a sh my first shift as a civilian. That's weird to tell you the truth. That was okay. weird because it yeah. was like, I left, I went back. Uh, I think I brought clothes that day because I knew I was cutting it tight. And then I put on my civilian clothes and I walked into the center and I thought, 
man, the last seven years, I've been walking in here with a uniform on every day, and this is just weird. And in that moment, I realized that my buddies in their Air Force uniforms were no longer my, I mean, still my colleagues, still my buddies, but that all now all of a sudden these, I was working with these East and West Germans, which was strange. It felt, it felt almost like, ooh, I left the team, but I, I still joined another team. But I just know it was, a, it was a strange feeling that day. But I thought, man, I'm still doing, I'm doing the exact same job. There's no difference. I just get to wear mm. cool clothes. Mm. Yeah. And so, so how come you decided, and I think it was 2000, uh, to leave Germany? Oh, because I was going to get married. So I okay. did a... I moved to New Jersey to get married. And after about a month of being in New Jersey, so, so I put my Kundigong in, I left in, um, I think I left in 19, no, it was, it was June of 2000, right? So it was like after the Vende uh, or the, the 2K thing. So in June of 2000, I flew to New Jersey to get married. And after about a month, I decided, oh, I think I made the wrong decision. And uh, after two months, I was absolutely sure I made the wrong decision. And then I called the supervisor in Berlin and I said, I think I've made a wrong decision. Is there any way we can turn this around? And he was like, sure. And I was like, really? And then I asked how long I could, I was like, well, uh, how long can I stay here before I, before I have to come back? Or when do you need me? And he was cool about that too. He was like, well, you can stay away for six months because of your Aufenthaltsgenehmigung. And uh, so I was gone like five months, um, three weeks and six days. I came and back how, on the- How did you realize that it was the wrong decision? Was it because you felt more like a, like a German than you did as an American and you felt like America was not your country anymore? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, the whole time before 2000, I would always talk about how great America was and how much I missed it. And I was always comparing everything in Germany to what I remembered from the U.S. And when I went back to the U.S., it was, or as, as a more adult person, I looked at things a lot differently. And I thought, this is not and just basic conversations with people would would turn really strange quickly and i i felt i thought wow i can't live and be the person that i i want to be here there were weird social constraints and um people's political mentality and uh, lots of things and i thought i i was more german than i had realized yeah, and, and that, that sounds pretty similar to what happened six years later in 2006 when you left Berlin and the whole um, radar facility was closed and moved to Bremen. Then like on the first days yeah. you arrived in Bremen, you were probably like, oh my God, I'm, I was living in Berlin. That's such a great city. There's so much going on. And now I'm in, in that small Northern Germany city. There's not, not much going on. People are a lot different. Um, but you told me that later you realize that well it's not too bad here right i mean in 2000 when i made the decision to go back i made you know pros and cons of going back to 
Berlin. And on the part, maybe in the middle, I had a soil that said reality. I was like, I have to, if I, if I go back to Berlin, I have to know, I know part of going back is going to be this move to Bremen is in my future. Oh, so you already knew so, in 2000 that that's, that will I think in come. 19, I think in 1999 is when they told us. Okay. There was a, there was like a Wirtschafts firm or um, Wirtschafts proofer firm that did a big good auction and decided what would make the most economic sense. And they compared the different places and which would make the most economic sense for the DFS to, to combine facilities. And they chose Bremen for some reason. And I, I had visited Bremen also in, oh, I probably came here in like 2001. I think the first year after I came back from the US, I was like, I, I need to go take a visit to what's gonna be my future home. Cause I knew that was down the road eventually. And um, I drove through here and I live now, I live on Kerfirstenalle and there's a blitzer. And I was kind of like, chugga, 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 driving down the street, not paying attention to what the speed limit was. And, and that blitzer is right in front of the apartment that I've lived in the last 14 years. But on that fatal day, I had to give up my license for six months after that because I think it was a 50 zone and I was going, I don't know, 75 or something because I was just cruising. I was like, I'm going to check out my new city. So I thought that's a rude welcoming. Yeah, true. Yeah. But no, I, I when I made the decision to come back, I knew that that was in my future. And the when I drove here also in 2006, I was thinking in my head, um, it's probably a good time to downshift a little bit too. In Berlin, I was always going to the theater and the opera and involved in this, that, and the other thing, super involved in my church, super involved. I was just burning the candle at both ends all the time there. I, I had, I never had an empty calendar. I always had it full with everything. And I was always looking for more stuff to pack into it. I was like, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> I know my and <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, man, I mean, okay, in 2006, I was 41. So I was like, maybe it's time to slow down a little bit. And I did, I did welcome it. I, I made jokes about coming here and that I was living here in exile, but eventually, I mean, you can't compare the two cities. One is what it is, the other one is what it is. And there's good things to Berlin as well as bad things but that's you're going to have anywhere you go in and then what, general, what also happened in, in 2006 was the closure of Temple of Airport do you remember that day oh that was 2008 that was two years oh, 2008 later. right okay so yeah, 2006 no, you came to Berlin and then you were uh, to, to Bremen and then you were still working right. Temple of from Bremen yeah. and then 2008 that was closing Wait, were you on duty on that day when Temple of was closing um no, I, I went to Berlin because in it closed on October 31st, 2008. Okay. And I went to Berlin about a month earlier because over Zing, this X-I-N-G, that network, mm -hmm. when I came to Bremen, I put a profile at Zing and then I made like a bowling team to meet new people. So I met tons of people at Zing 
Yeah, and I was also at Zing and was in the aviation forum. And there were a bunch of people that were really saddened about Temple Off closing. And I always would put my two cents in there about how I was saddened. And there was a gentleman in Frankfurt that wanted to do a fly-in. And he asked me if I could help him do it. And I was like, sure, I'll see what I can do. And we organized a fly-in. I think that, that must have been in September of 2008. And it was beautiful. There was, I mean, we organized buses. We had a big dinner together. We took everyone um, to this big dinner on the Kudam. We had like a big special meeting on the apron at Tempelhof. There were aircraft from the UK. I think there was 250, 300 flights. Wow. They didn't come in like all at once. They came in like a little bit at a time because we had talked to the airspace uh, special airspace use guy and he was like well they they have to try to come in bfr you know not to bother the controllers and stuff like that but it was a it was cool it was cool and it was sad there were so many people that wanted to have one last flight and one last look and for me that was like my obsheed to temple off because it gave me everything and um Oh, I don't want to get sad here, <laughs> but um, the day it closed, oh, some also over seeing in the aviation forum, some guy that owns a helicopter, like a weird little in Verde. Verde is west of Berlin by Potsdam. Uh, Verde on der Havel. It's different than the Verde here. And um, he offered to give me a helicopter flight to Tempelhof. I was like, VIP treatment, of course, I'm gonna do this. And the weather was really bad that day. So I drove to Verda from Bremen, I get there and his helicopter, it looks like a home built thing. <laughs> it was like the rotor was, I, I was like, oh my God, I'm gonna have to put my hair away somewhere because that thing is just gonna, and, um, <laughs> Like the floor was plexiglass, um, but he was a cool dude. And it was like the first time I met him and I was like, let's do this. And I think we waited an hour or something because the weather just wasn't getting better. And he was, I was like, look, I, I called Bruce at Temple Off Tower and I was like, Bruce, we're going to need some special VFR, man, or something. And I told the guy, don't worry, I got this under control. It's going to be cool. Just miss the trees and power lines or whatever. <laughs> and um, we took off and I don't know what, I, I'm going to say we flew extremely low and in IMC conditions the majority of the time. We were assured okay. that there was nobody else out there. Nobody uh, or none around us. But that was the scariest flight of my life. And I was like, if I die flying to Temple off today. But um, so we landed next to everyone else. And the guy didn't stay that long. He was like, uh, I'm going to be stuck here if I don't get out of here now. And I was like, right, because then someone's going to have to transport your, your um, aircraft. And um, he took off. And then I just wandered around the perimeter like watching all the people's faces. The saddest was in front of the, the Flughafen Eingang, you know, the, the main entrance mm -hmm. to the terminal. All the Berliners were there. It was so gray and so rainy and so 
all these Berliners were there lighting candles and stuff. And in the Flughafen terminal, there was all these politicians and VIPs and stuff. They were like celebrating this. It was like you were at a mm. funeral outside all of this gray, dark and despair. And then in there, it was, it was like holly golly party. And I was so, it sucked so bad for the people outside to see this lack of like def- reverence for that special place that they couldn't mm-hmm. have, you know, contained themselves that they had to be in there sipping champagne as if they were celebrating something good. Because for yeah. everyone else, it didn't feel good. But it's and, interesting uh, that all those Berliners came, came for the closure because it was in the middle of the city, right? And a lot of people were affected by, yeah. by airplane noise, but still Berlin right. seemed to, to really love this airport. And it was the same when I was uh, attending the Tegel closure um, back in mm. October, 2020. There were so many people just uh, just saying goodbye to their airport because it actually was the last of, of Berlin's airports. Um, the BER right. is not inside the, the, the Berlin city. So right. um, yeah, that, that, that was another very sad day. Have you been working um, the, the last table day? Yeah, I worked the last Air, uh, the Air France. Oh, right, we worked that, that was together, the, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, I remember, now no, I was on the, on the 7th of November, it was, I think, I was in Berlin. There was like the okay. last operational day with uh, lots of VFR traffic coming in for a low pass and then still those um those normal flights to frankfurt Düsseldorf, and wherever right and right. Uh, then on the 8th of november there was only only one flight uh, leaving tegel that day there was the air france which also was right. the first one um landing in tegel when it was a civil airport back right. Then. right right so how, how, how did yes. you feel about that losing another airport within your career um I mean, it, you say it is what it is. I didn't think it felt good. I mean, when the decision was made, it was made. Um, it seemed, I mean, what I wanted to do at the very end is at least to control the new airport a little bit before I left. So saying goodbye to Tegel It's a natural part of this process that they're doing in Berlin. I would say politically, I think that made absolutely no sense. Tempelhof, that closure probably did make sense. I mean, it was built at a time. It was not, it was, it's not meant for the kind of traffic, you know, the taxiing areas. It makes no sense for modern aviation. It's, 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 it's beautiful. It's historic. Now it serves also a beautiful purpose, but it was not built for modern aviation. And Tegel, they could have. They never really gave Tegel a chance. They didn't invest in Tegel for 20 years because for 20 years it was always closing, you know? Mm-hmm. They but let I, it. I mean, they, they, did, let they, it. they could have kept one of the airports as a business airport or just for the government right. airplanes, right? right. I oh, mean, God, yeah. With, yeah. with all those business airplanes, like the, the slow citations and everything else, right. they. Right. They don't really fit into the traffic flow on final at BER, so you would always have to right. delay an Airbus a little bit to, to get the small business jets in and everything. So right. that would have been great. And it's in, in the middle of the city, which is perfect for businessmen who just come there in the morning and then leave in the afternoon. Right. Christian Hagen yeah. is not going to fill that void. 
And I don't no. think Strasbourg is going to fill that void. No. Or does Strasbourg, do they have a, a RMC? Or they have plans uh, not, for not, one, right? Not yet, but I think Strasbourg is receiving their, their instrument procedures in uh, June this year. Oh, wow. And I, I think there, there are also a couple other um, airfields like uh, Kuritz and Neuhardenberg and Fino. They, they all want to have their RMP approach. But they won't mm. replace an airport in the middle of the city because it's still like a 30 minute or so right into the city. So, right, right. Yeah. No, Berlin had it good for a long time. I mean, they really had a long stretch, but uh, in a way it makes, the thing is because like Immobilien is so expensive and the more people move in, you know, Umland, it actually makes more sense to have other airports a little bit further away from the center of the city, because that's where people are gonna be going anyway. Yeah. It's gonna happen in lots of big cities. It's just, Berlin is probably gonna be less desirable in 10 or 15 years because of everything that made it great. It won't exist anymore. I think already this pandemic is gonna take a, a big bite out of their Tanzkultur you know, mm -hmm. this techno dancing yeah. thing yeah, that was, you know, every easy jet flight, you would stand at, at Tegel and see the people getting off an easy jet or something. And they all had, you know, like hair out to, and they would be like, yeah. <laughs> you know, already getting off the plane. They were like, we're going yeah. to Berlin. So it was like, I loved it. I thought it was great. I love that, that beautiful kind of freedom that people would have. It's like getting off the plane in Las Vegas, you know, you get off the plane yeah. in Las Vegas and it's like, woo, woo, woo. <laughs> what, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. T talking yeah. about goodbyes, um, we've had Templo from Tegel and then there was this goodbye from Air Berlin, which was our airline. I remember the, the good yeah. old, old days when I finished my training back then and we yeah. had those inbound rushes like four or five inbound rushes everything was full the frequency was full the holdings were full the transitions full air Berlin. everything came in since tegel was the and hub uh for evelyn then they left right. all at the same time and right. then in 2017 we lost like our airline that felt so bad right. i remember us working it um there's yeah. an, an ATC recording on YouTube, uh, which uh, we can listen real quick. And then mm. we, we designed those shirts, which was pretty exactly. cool back then. So exactly, so and we all had them on. We all had them on. I'll, I'll just show some yeah. pictures um, from the day yeah. and, and put them into the video. How, how okay. do you remember that day? Oh, that also felt, that felt similar to Temple Off closing, believe, believe it or not. I felt devastated that that could happen. That felt, um, God, that day felt really, really hard. I wasn't sure if I really wanted to sit in position. I wasn't sure if I would keep it together. So that just- You, you, you actually pre prepared a little um, goodbye saying to, to Captain Dave, who you also know. Um, let, let's listen to it real quick. Yeah. Evelyn uh, Forever, uh, Sie müssen mal sehen, was hier gerade hinter mir los ist. Hier sind viele, viele Kollegen aus uh, dem Berlin Approach, die heute eigentlich gar nicht arbeiten würden, extra nochmal reingekommen, um sich heute von Ihnen zu verabschieden. Ich möchte mich persönlich bei Ihnen, der Crew und der gesamten Air Berlin für die super Zusammenarbeit bedanken und wünsche Ihnen alles Gute. Ich hoffe, dass wir uns bald wiedersehen unter einem anderen Callsign auf unserer Frequenz. 
geht jetzt weiter bei Colleen auf der 136 Decimal 1. Tschüss und alles Gute. 136 Decimal 1 und ihr sprecht mich aus dem Herzen. Vielen Dank. Ihr seid alle toll für uns und äh, wir hoffen, dass wir sehen uns ja bald wieder. Man sieht sich immer zweimal im Leben. Danke. Evelyn forever. Over and out. Have a better one. Air Berlin forever. Hey buddy, uh, Air Berlin forever, you identified fly heading 070. Right turn, 070, Air Berlin forever. Okay, I have to get this out of the way, Captain Dave, and uh, all of the people of Air Berlin. You served an island city and you grew to serve a nation. You transported people to adventures, to their loved ones, to work and home. And Air Berlin's been a great ambassador to the city of Berlin. And she'll always live in our hearts and in our minds and in our memories forever. It was a wonderful thing to serve. Berlin forever heading 230, equipped with ILS 26 right, call me established. I turn 230, equipped with ILS on my 26 right, we'll call you established. Berlin forever. A wonderful tour of Berlin. Thank you, Bremen Center. We love you, Dave, and uh, hope to hear you soon in different colors or whatever, but uh, I'll always know you by your have a better one. No. Air Berlin forever, contact Eagle Tower 124525. I'll be your thing. 124525 for Air Berlin forever. Have a better one. Okay. Yeah, but you you and Dave had a really nice little, you know, where they said you did your uh, heart over Berlin yeah, by vectoring that, that, him. That was actually not on purpose. Like, it was everywhere right. in the media. So so I was working approach and then um, saying hello to him. And then I think I asked him, is there anything special you would like to do? And he said, yeah, if we could see all the, the three airports over Berlin and right. then come in, in for landing. And then I kind of vectored him, and then there was this go around or something for, with a Nikki or so. You had him on frequency, had some kind exactly. of a flat problem or whatever. And so yeah. I, I had to change my plans and then vector him around for a little bit more than initially planned. And that, I don't know, it, it somehow looked like a heart on the on the flight radar um, thing, but uh, that was not on purpose. And then you had him on feeder yeah. and you you said the, the last goodbye, you, you sent the last ever Evelyn to Table Tower. Yeah. So yeah. I guess that was a the super sad feeling back then. That that was sad. And I was happy to get out of position that night because then everyone was kind of jubilant. I don't know if you remember, everyone came and we took that picture together. I was really like, like in a bubble, I really felt like, uh, it's like, I don't know. I, I felt very alone in this sadness. I think there were like, I, I felt like you felt it like to the same intensity. I know Felix came over and said something to me and he really was like, but I could like, like I could sense for who this sentimentality or something was like a huge weight it really yeah. felt like 
oh, hard to breathe. And that that's weird to have a relationship to an arc to to it, like it, a it's not only the airline. entity. It, it, yeah. It's not only the airline. We we both know Evelyn pilots um, who lost their job that night. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, we know the history of the airline. It's it's not yeah. an airline which was flying for like two years or so. It was like it, it was yeah. German history. So yeah, and it, I mean, it felt so cool that Berlin had its own. You know, you don't have like Air New York or Air Paris or Air London. Okay, right. maybe you have something similar, but Air Berlin was like that was like the ambassador for a nation. Yeah, and it started out with Germany's fixation with going to Mallorca. And it turned into this, but that's pretty much how it started. It yeah, was just the, the daily Mallorca fluke. And it turned into this great, big, wonderful family of uh, aviators. But like you said, those Air Berlin rushes, they could be annoying as heck, man. Sometimes you would sit there and be like, oh, how oh I, I, I loved this it. I, I, I loved it. I, no, I, I did too. I did too. After Air Berlin was gone, it was probably more or less the same amount of traffic, like with EasyJet yeah. and Ryanair and Lufthansa taking part of their um, flights, yeah. but it was not this this hub airport anymore. So you you had a constant right. flow of air traffic for the whole day, but right. you you didn't even have to use the the transitional holdings anymore, which was I don't know it, right. it was kind of boring. And, and there were only a couple of times a day where you could still sit on feeder position and then like always do those push it three point two three point three miles two point so, eight. Two point eight. No, we never did two point eight. Never. No, never. Um, never. <laughs> hey, Tower, do you see them? Are you visual on them? <laughs> Can you do a swing over? Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah, those, those are days times. are long gone. Yeah. True. Yeah. It's gonna be a while before you guys see those days again. I know. I'm. I'm so happy that I ever saw them. So. Yeah. Oh, the new controllers yeah. which are on training now. I feel so sorry for them because they only sit there and they have like two aircraft, maybe three aircraft at a time on frequency with the COVID right now. Mm. So that's, yeah. that's bad, yeah. I think I think when it comes back, it's gonna come back. It Maybe not the same as 2018 or 17 or something like that, but it's it'll come back. I think there's, I'm fed up with sitting at home. You know, yeah. I think everybody same wants here. to get in an airplane and go someplace, Yeah. you know? That's like my flights best. for June, I canceled, okay. which I can't believe. But uh, so, what, what are your plans now for, for retirement? Do you have any special plans? Yeah, um, yeah, I'm going to Dusseldorf, and there I want to just focus on writing this book. I okay. thought hard about the choice of place, and I thought in Berlin, I have way too many distractions there that there's no way I would focus on this one thing that I want to finish. And I wanted to get distance to Bremen and I wanted to be closer to other places that I um, would like to visit and stuff like that. So this okay. is probably just the first step in going someplace else if it's Portugal five years down the road. But right now this is only a move for the purpose of finishing the book and concentrating on that. Okay, nice. Yeah. So fingers, yeah. fingers crossed that you will have time enough to finish those books. I'm really excited to read those. Oh, I think I will. And if we stay in lockdown for two more years, man, that puppy's going to be done by the end of this year. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, so I think we have a good one and a half hours now. Um, I prepared really? one more thing. 
for, for okay. the podcast. There's this pilot to pilot podcast I listen to. Um, and that guy, he has this rapid fire question section in the end. So I prepared okay. like five or six questions and I'll ask them to you. And okay. you, you can just answer them, whatever first comes to your mind. And then, then try okay. to think on it um, as an air traffic controller, not as a passenger or so. Okay. All okay. right. So which position did you prefer working? Was it radar or co? Feeder. Feeder. Okay, that's actually <laughs> the next question. Did you, did you prefer tower approach or feeder? Feeder. What was your favorite airline? Pan Am. What was your least favorite airline? Austrian. That's the easy one. <laughs> I, I, and, and I remember why. <laughs> exactly. What was your favorite airport? Tempelhof. Do you prefer radar vectoring or using waypoints and on-off transitions? Vector. Victor. <laughs> that was a good one too. Do, do you prefer working like on a sunny day with Kev OK or working thunderstorms and busy airspace? Thunderstorms. Definitely thunderstorms. And what's your favorite aircraft type? that i like a shorts um shorts there's it has that double tail in the back yep I, um what is it what is the number shorts 36 is that right or 22? 360 360 yeah 360 uh shorts 360 okay. I, for some reason i like that airplane okay it never it didn't fly in our airspace but i like yeah it's, it. it's, it's not a not a usual answer but <laughs> i'll take it and i like the i like the pilatus also the um the pilatus six. Oh, the porter yeah yeah nice okay i think that is a cool i think that guy the ceiling on that little mother sucker is amazing for so the size of airplane, i like that yeah. exactly awesome all right, Colleen, that's it from my side. Thank you very, very much for that interesting podcast. I've been looking forward to this Thank for you. months. And I wish okay. you all the best for your retirement. And I just Thank hope you keep in touch. It's been a pleasure working yeah. with you. Thank you. Over and out. Over and out. Roger. <laughs> Roger. Awesome. Aaron Connor reports his order. <laughs> <laughs>